0: Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samba Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samba sam Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samba sam homage to the Buddha, the blessed noble and fully self-enlightened one. So, uh, this evening, well, let me tell you what happens tomorrow, and it makes sense. So tomorrow we we carry on till uh, lunchtime, and then because the weather, it should be enough fine tomorrow, by the way, uh, the weather gets sort of darkish and cold, we might do just a small sit at two o'clock, but then uh, hopefully we will assault the mountain behind us. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Not this one, that one. <laughs> it's, it's only 300 metres, there's nothing. Mm-hmm. Mark's, Mark ran up and down it, Here's no problem. <laughs> um, and then we come back and, uh, and then in the evening just questions and answers really, whatever discussion comes up. Okay. And then on Sunday morning uh, I do a little finishing ceremony, uh, breakfast, and, and then you can escape. So, this evening, really, it's just tackling this whole problem of daily life. You know, how do we take into daily life? Um, And just um, use various ways that the Buddha talks about it. first of all, just to um, get a clear idea of what the Buddha's position is, uh, when we compare it to other systems, shall we say. Uh, If we look at Christianity, um, it really centers in upon the morality of things. So, you know, the basic myth about Adam and the apple. Um, And then that because of that initial mistake, every, everybody suffers and whatnot. And, and we've all got this um, original sin, this sort of thing that has to be wiped. And then it's a very complicated story about the role of Jesus and, and stuff like that. But the, but the basic thing is that we're caught between the devil and God. And there's a lovely story of Job, which all of you have read, of course. In which, in which the devil says to God, this fellow Job, of course he loves you. You've given him everything he's got. You know, all these wives and kids and these, all his land and cattle. He said, you've got to test him. So uh, God thought, hmm. So he began to test Job, and he killed all his wives and all his kids. <laughs> Took away all his cattle And he's absolutely devastated. (coughs) And he can't understand why this has happened to him. So then we have these Job's comforters. They all come basically tell him he must have done something wrong. But he hasn't. And he can't think what he's done to deserve this catastrophe. But the one thing he doesn't lose is faith in God. The one thing he doesn't lose is faith in the goodness of God. And eventually God, of course... Recognizes this, this trust, and gives everything back a hundredfold and all that. Stuff. If, um, if, if you like the Coen Brothers, their uh, film "A Serious Man" is based on Job and it's extraordinarily funny. Anyway, that's that's by the way. <laughs> the uh, Freud simply took that onto a. psychological or psychoanalytic level. So with Freud, you've got this... So, uh, for a a Christian, it's this trying to know what is good and evil, uh, good and evil, and this battle, you see, between the temptations of the devil and the invitations of God. That's the battle, see, between good and evil. In uh, Freud... You get a slightly different model where you've got this poor little ego, who at one minute is dragged down by this animal id <laughs> and uh, constantly castigated by the super ego. And, and the poor ego has to weave a little way between these two <laughs> between these two opposites and uh, and try to find some sort of stability. I just just general, you know. From the Buddha's point of view. It's a slightly different problem. Yes, um, all those things come up in his teaching. The decision, you know, about what is wholesome and unwholesome, what is skillful, etc. Um, that the the id, these base desires, basic desires—not particularly base—that our animal nature drawn to, uh, you know, sex and uh, and lust uh, and, 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 and and greed and then avarice and all that, um, all these things are in the Buddha's teachings. And, um, and the desire to seek happiness in, in doing something good, that's all there too, you see. So it's not as though uh, the Buddha would deny any of that. In fact, he would say that those who have understood that there is consequence for doing good and doing evil, in other words, the law of karma, they, they're actually on the path. They're actually on the path, you see. That's, that's the basic understanding. So you see, there were people in his time who would have said, it doesn't matter what you do, you can go down one side of the Ganges and do tremendous compassionate acts and come up the other side, murdering and pillaging. It would make a blind bit of difference because your, your life is set. It's conditioned. It's, it's fated. So, um, uh, that would be uh, not in his understanding. From the Buddha's point of view, eh, the problem is at a slightly deeper level, you might say, as to why do we do these things in the first place. So, And there he came across this fundamental delusion about who we are. Remember that, having decided, having... Um, Believing that we are human beings, and heaven save all oh, we want is to be happy. See, no matter how you might define it, if you ask any human being what they want, they say, I want to be happy, and they might define it in all sorts of different ways, but that's what they want to be they want to be happy. And that search for happiness leads to uh, this acquisitiveness, remember, gathering things, because the more you have of what you like, the happier you seem to be. You know, the more money in the bank, you feel safer, etc., etc. And anything that undermines any of that, of course, is you want to get rid of. So there's your aversion. And if it's bigger than you, then you run for it. There's your fear. So there's your your three basic attitudes of acquisitiveness, aversion and fear, arising from uh, the idea that, as a human being, I can achieve happiness, permanent happiness. You can achieve it in little bits, but then... Uh, you know, it always it always lets you down, doesn't it? So, although there is at that level of working with what is unwholesome, unwholesome virtuoso, and wholesome, virtuous and otherwise, at a deeper level, it's cutting through the very delusion that's causing it. That's a slightly different model. So the accent is on an investigation as to how these things happen, as to how we behave the way we do, you see. And he wouldn't deny the role of of, uh, of, uh, guilt and shame. Um, He would deny the sort of existential guilt that might be felt within uh, the Christian, Judaic and Muslim tradition, where... You are fundamentally evil and you can only be saved by God or Jesus or or, or whatever. Um, But uh, that wouldn't work from his point of view. But what does work is that when you do something harmful then you dread dread consequences. And there's your dread. There's your guilt, you see. Fear of being caught. And the shame. Shame is just not living up to your own standards, feeling belittled by your own behavior, and seeing yourself belittled in other people's eyes because of your behavior. And <clears throat> so those two things the Buddha actually calls guardians, guardians of society. He's not saying they're wholesome, but it does stop you doing things. So... um You've got this uh, model where on the one part it's an investigation as to our true nature and what should our relationship be to the world. And on the other part it's dealing with habits that we've accumulated, uh, developed because of past wrong understanding and even present wrong understanding. And we're still deluded. Remember that uh, the definition of deluded or delusion, is that you don't know where the delusion is. I mean, <laughs> if you knew where it was, you wouldn't be deluded. So we've talked a lot about the hindrances and all that sort of stuff. So maybe it's also time now to talk about these parami. Parami means to be other shore. It's translated as perfections, but basically it's the virtues that we need to um, take us across the water to this island. So the island the Buddha often uses as an image for Nibbana. It's something beyond this present life form, you see. So <clears throat> let me read through them first, and, uh, and, then, and then afterwards I just want to talk a little bit about um, commitment, you see. So we have ten qualities. Now, in the Mahayana they have five, see, but uh, in Theravada they have ten, which proves that we're better. <laughs> <So> <laughs> actually actually, these were, these were compiled later out of the scriptures I think as a challenge to <laughs> to anyway these are the purifications uh, ten leading ones so there's the giving or liberality to, um, generosity there's morality, renunciation wisdom, energy patience, truthfulness resolution, loving kindness and equanimity so obviously it doesn't include every virtue there is but at least it gives us some sort of platform. Giving is really the basic um, virtue the Buddha points to uh, as a starting point, because uh, he points out that even thieves can can be generous with what they've just <laughs> well they've just taken from you. They can be very generous to their to their friends and family. So generosity is is probably. Uh, one of the easiest things that you can do because it's a matter of giving, you see. And he always starts his talk to lay people with dana, with with this idea of giving. And then he talks about the good life and he talks about um, being reborn in the heavenly realms and all that. And and when he's he's got his audience, then he hits them with the Four Noble Truths. (laughs) He's all wheedles his way in, you know. So... Uh, don't, I want to latch together these three great virtues, gratitude, uh, generosity, and renunciation. Um, when we consider what we've received, is gratitude arises. And it's a lovely feeling, isn't it, gratitude, thankfulness. And if you, if you go through your life, and, and instead of thinking of how horrible everybody's been to you, Terrible society and all that, and, and instead you go through and, and, and make a list of all, all the things that you've been given, yeah, even this life by your by our mothers. Um, then you know very slowly uh, the balance moves, generally speaking, towards gratitude rather than grudge. And uh, what gratitude does, of course, it fills a heart with the desire to repay, you know, to do something in return. And often you can't do it to the people who've uh, offered you, who've done done you good, because either they moved on or or you've lost contacts, etc. But uh, so therefore, it's you move it towards an attitude of giving, and it might not be giving what you received, but it's just it's just knowing that gratitude impels you to be generous, one way or the other. You see. And generosity is either of our wealth or our time, you see, isn't it? Now, the interesting thing is that every time you give something, you're giving something up. Because you could have used it for yourself. So when you make a donation to a cause, you know, you could have used it, well, to have a good time. And every time you give your time for the benefit of somebody else, well, you could have used it to have a good time. You might have had a good time <laughs> helping them, but it wasn't. It wasn't for you. So there's that renunciation, you see. And sometimes, um, when you give, you can sometimes push the giving just a little bit so that it it hurts a little, because that little bit of hurt means you're stretching your idea of renunciation. Um, I think parents with. But children obviously have a wonderful opportunity because (laughs) you know like it's just like you've got to keep stretching (laughs) keep they demand and you've got to keep stretching out towards giving giving easy. Uh, So these three virtues are intimately connected, right? Gratitude, generosity and renunciation. Now, renunciation, remember, mustn't be confused with self-mortification. In self-mortification, what we mean by that, in in Buddhist terms, is that you, you sort of believe the body is at fault, and you're almost denying the body its desires because the body is leading you into wrongdoing. So you blame the body. So, for instance, if you had a problem with uh, alcohol, you're blaming the body, you know? you know. So, it's a case of recognizing that that's not what renunciation is. Renunciation, in Buddhist understanding, is to give something up to see your attachment. And you don't know how attached you are to something, till what you have has gone. And then there comes all these things that we've talked about with, uh, you know, with attachment, you know, the, the grief and, the, uh, and all that. So, uh, whenever we're generous, that's an opportunity to reflect on, you know, to actually make it a pure act of generosity. So, sometimes we, there are all sorts of reasons for giving. You, you might give, uh, I mean, you might do something for a business reason. You know, well, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, you, you, you buy somebody a drink so that they will, you know, sign the contract. Well, so what's the problem with that? <laughs> but it's not Generosity. In, in, in a in a spiritual sense. Uh we buy presents at Christmas for each other, you know, you bottle of wine and somebody buys you cheese, you know, or a pair of socks for anything. So <laughs> and it's just an exchange of goods. I mean this goes back to ancient times. Kings exchanged goods as a way of just, you know, creating a certain friendship. But that's not generosity in in the spiritual sense. But there's nothing wrong with it. It it has its it has its purpose in our relationships, you see. Uh, The generosity we're talking about is, you know, giving for the sake of the other, not for any reason, not for any purpose of return. So uh, we have to be careful when when we give something, and this is what we mean, this is why this reflection is important. So when you give something, you know, you give it for the benefit of the other, you see. And when that suffuses your heart, when that suffuses your intention, your intention is complete and whole, that's what's in your mind, you're giving it for their benefit, that's when you give, you see. So that the action supports the intention, and that's your conditioning. Okay? And we're conditioning ourselves to just give, to just give. Now, you have to be careful, because after you've done that, you see, th- these little voices come up, yeah, you're truly a generous person. <laughs> see? So you point to that and you say, ah, so no, no, Mara. No, you weren't there, you weren't there. You or, or, or one of these little underlying things, it's too much, get some back. Or <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> all this, all this, all this sometimes you don't reflect upon somebody asking you, like, like you know, decorations. See, we had the, all this decoration. It went on for days and days. And, uh, you know, if... If somebody uh, comes along and says, "We'd like to," oh yeah, I'll come along, and then they go and think, "I don't want to decorate." Damn it, you know. (laughs) And and then they they phone up and say they're not feeling very well. (laughs) (laughs) And and, I mean, you can't blame. It's not bad to blame people, but it just shows that often uh, we give without a certain reflection. Um, But often, and we're coming to truthfulness. It's defined as doing what you say you're going to do. Even if it hurts, because when you do something that you said you were going to do and then you didn't want to do it and you make yourself do it, and it, it teaches you, you know, next time you'll be just a bit more careful before you say yes. <laughs> 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 make the same mistake again. So, uh, this, this whole uh, area of, of, um, of giving, it's, it's reflecting on it, you see, and you give it. And of course, uh, you, can, you can do that with uh, Christmas presents even though at the back of your mind you know that if you didn't give it, that would be the end of your friendship. <laughs> the fact is that you can put that to the side and, you know, and give something for the person's benefit. So uh, remember that intention is crucial. Your intention is crucial. And the purer it is, the better. And of course, don't forget, you can be generous to yourself. You know, you have to also, we have to also learn that you know, I am also worthy of, of generosity. And sometimes you have to look after yourselves. So the Buddha did. I mean, here he is. He's um, he's he's liberated from suffering. He says he doesn't suffer, and yet he goes off into the into the forest to meditate. And so they ask him. He well, "Why? Why do you do that? You know, you're liberated now. <laughs> 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 liberated." But he says, "No, I do it for my own quiet abiding, and as a good example to others." But notice the first thing is my quiet abiding. Like he's had enough. All these questions. and, <laughs> and then, <laughs> Grabbing his potty so he's going to say he's offering it. oh god you know, a bit of peace and quiet you know and, and he does it also as a uh, you know to show um, uh, to be an example to others when you feed yourself you see when you eat yourself you know really say really acknowledge that this is for our benefit it's not for my benefit I'm eating this for my benefit so that I can uh, you know continue to live <laughs> and live the spiritual life so it's very. You'll be careful um, that you that you that you don't get into this thing about helping others and, and leave yourself out, because in, eventually it works against you. I mean, you get this burnout business, you know. And uh, uh, giving uh, somebody who's a, a, you know a do gooder. See, that's the other side of it. So a do gooder in my definition. Excuse me, is somebody who does you the good they want to do you, <laughs> whether you want it or not. <laughs> See, <laughs> and and people like that come from a good heart, but they they're not really standing in your shoes. They're not really looking at the world from what you know what you want to do. They they think, well, you know, this this is what uh, this is what's good for you, you know, and <laughs> and it can be a real pain. So, so uh, you know, the example I give is that somebody, somebody's ill, so, you, you know, you take them, you take them uh, grapes and, uh, and soup or something, you know, and they say, they, you know, they, thank you very much, but I, I really couldn't, couldn't eat, you know, this soup, you see. And, and inside your mind you say, God, you know, I've just spent two hours making this bloody soup. <laughs> and they say, you could do something for me. Oh, yeah, yeah very good. Could you clean my toilet? <laughs> to clean my toilet I think I better clean your toilet I came here to offer of you soup. <laughs> so you can always catch yourself you know, when, when you're doing this good and then you find you find actually you're being a do-gooder so uh, how do we get beyond that it's very simple, you, you ask the person what they want <laughs> you know you don't presume on anything at all so um, Giving itself is is a really uh, the uh, generosity is, is really crucial in our practice, and uh, it's a form of love, of course. Generosity is it's just you know it's just there, and you know it is it's lovely when you see these um, um, you know sp- what do they call it sports for you know these sports relief yeah sport relief and comic relief and they raise masses of money and it's it's really quite. Well, it's quite uplifting to know that people are prepared to, you know, to give, uh, you know, for these causes, really wonderful. So that, uh, that sort of covers um, three of them anyway. So it's the giving and the, I mean, gratitude isn't mentioned here, but it's definitely something. Meister Eckhart, whom some of you might know, the 13th century mystic, who's very close to Buddhism, when, you know, if you read his stuff, it's very, very close to the Buddha's understanding. Uh, he says, if you were to say thank you all the time, that would be enough. That's how important he thought gratitude was. Yeah. And it's, uh, Brian does it, doesn't he? Just for today, I will be thankful. See, he, even he's caught on to it. So, <laughs> so uh, it's, it's something to reflect on so we 've done the renunciation renunciation is you know uh, and it's just it 's just catching yourself uh, these um, sneaky little selfishnesses mm. you know where <laughs> you take just the bigger piece of cake, you know what I mean just, you take that extra toffee you know and, <laughs> and then you just catch yourself and uh, and then you hate the person that gets it of course. <laughs> so uh, renunciation uh, morality well we've, we've talked a lot about that uh, you know um, it's again morality here the Buddha is actually meaning just the basic things that you determine You know, not, not to go there that's all wisdom well we've talked about that so this is more of a of a mental of a mind so a lot of these are heart things like giving and renunciation, and patience. But wisdom is coming from this wisdom within us, this, uh, this, this understanding, the faculty of wisdom, which is not to be confused with intellect, remember. Um, there's a lovely story, in the Dhan I always forget the name of the monk, but um, in those days, remember, they didn't write things down, they remembered them. And uh, this, this poor monk, he said, when he learnt a new stanza of the Buddha's teachings, it would knock the one he's just learned out of his head. (laughs) So his brothers advised him to leave the monastic life, said, you know, you're not going to get anywhere. (laughs) So uh, the Buddha, hearing this, went to see him, and he gave him a very simple exercise of rubbing a piece of cloth and wiping his face with a clean cloth, and just saying, impermanence, impermanence, impermanence. And he became fully liberated. Just like that. It didn't work for everybody. It not work for me. But I mean, it's, not, <laughs> but it's that, it's that, uh, it's, it's a different faculty. It's not the intellect. It's not about, it's not about understanding something. The Buddha, there, there's one man called um, Puttika, what's his name? Uh, empty Puttika. Yeah. There's another monk, and he's, he, he can explain the Dharma wonderfully. But the Buddha calls him Empty putilla, Empty because he's not coming from experience, he's coming from his intellect, he's coming from understanding. And uh, people like that really have a big problem because they really believe that because they've really understood something, that therefore they've actually truly experienced it. So that's a lot to do with uh, our honesty as well, you see. Um, there's another little story about uh, a teacher, and all his students become fully liberated, and he isn't, and he thinks, "Oh, I can't understand this." Mm. <laughs> and so, so he goes off and, and he asks them, you know, he said, uh, "You know, how, you know, do you think you could help me?" And what the student realizes is, that his teacher's very conceited. So he says, "Well, I can't really help you. Um, uh, why don't you go and see somebody else?" Eventually. One of his students uh, tells him to go and see this little boy. So you can imagine, that's a bit humiliating, you know, uh, how to become liberated. So the little boy takes him off to an anthill. Now, in the east, when the ants have left, it's often the abode of a snake. And so the little boy says, if a snake lives in that anthill, and there are six holes, how do you get him to come out? See? And he said, well, you just stop up, five holes and they'll come out through the sixth. He says, that's what you've got to do. In other words, through the senses, right? the sixth senses, by stopping five senses and just watching the mind, then you begin to understand, you see. Well, of course, as, as all these stories go, in no length of time, the teacher was fully liberated. So, uh, don't get confused with understanding. The Buddha actually talks about three levels of understanding the level of just hearing something, being inspired by it, understanding it, but unable really to repeat it because it's not it's not become your own intellectual knowledge. And then once it has become your own understanding, you can talk about it. But then at a deeper level it has to be realised. Right? So you can talk about impermanence till the cows come home, you know. But have we have we actually experienced it at the level of me arising and passing away? So that's uh, the wisdom bit, yeah? Energy, uh, energy, uh, hmm, what's the other word? Effort. Yeah, you've got to be careful with this effort business. Uh, Remember that, um, normally speaking, our effort is in trying to do something, trying to achieve something, which is perfectly perfectly all right in the world. Uh, But when we come to our meditation, it's important to realise that the the effort is just to be aware. Once you start looking for something or trying to attain something, then uh, you normally end up in a hole, because even if you're not fully aware of it, there is some concept at the back of the mind driving this sense of of, uh, wanting to achieve something. So be careful with effort. Let's keep reminding yourself. Uh, my teacher used to say, your job is just to watch. Your job is just to be aware, you know. Patience. Ah, yeah, patience. The Buddha says this is the highest form of ascetic practice. So if you think of ascetic practice as, you know, uh, fasting for long times, or in certain uh, practices, you, you, you've seen um, these... Um, ascetics in the east even the early christian desert ascetics you know sort of like for instance just holding up their arm in the air till it withers you've seen that on? have you seen that one? yeah so these sort of heavy ascetic practices um he says actually the greatest of all ascetic practices is patience so patience is just a willingness to bear you know forbearance um not only just our own uh, internal pains and stuff, to be, you know, just not to get angry with things, not to be irritated, <clears throat> but of course with situations and other people. So it's a, that, that, that patience is, is one of his great virtues. And he gives the example of someone who says, If bandits came along and cut you from limb to limb, if at any time you felt hatred, or a grudge against them, you would be no disciple of mine. that's a bit tough, isn't it? When I told this one, somebody said, yeah, the Buddha had a great sense of (laughs) humour. But uh, patience is, uh, you know, it's just a great virtue, isn't it, patience? Truthfulness. Here it's defined as, you know, if you say you're going to do something, do it. But, I mean, you can stretch that also um, to being careful as to what you say. Even exaggeration is a small level of untruthfulness, you know. It's not being absolutely correct. Exaggerating both negatively and positively, you know. And then there's resolution. So that's what we were doing today, resolution. Resolution is just that uh, real commitment. In the Buddha's life it manifested in his resolution to sit under the tree and sort of work the problem out either to the point of death or or he would actually work it out. So you have to be pretty resolved to do something like that. Yeah? <clears throat> um, what I normally say is... That say a course, you come on a course, that you commit yourself to that course completely. Right. Except, you've, you've always got to put a little ex because you might go overboard. Except in emergency or extraordinary circumstance. Right. Of course you're going to define extraordinary circumstance in all sorts of ways. But the problem with making too hard a decision is that even when all the signs are you should stop, you don't. And then you do yourself damage, you see. I know somebody who um, kept sitting and sitting with knees, you know, with his knees business, you know. And um, the teachers, my teacher actually, uh, the Burmese would just say, watch the breath. <laughs> <laughs> you know, or sit, just watch the, you know, watch the pain, you see. Uh, unfortunately, she damaged the knees. So you have to be, you have to be slightly careful. You have to go. You have to really suffer if you want to damage your knees. By the way, you know it doesn't come with just a little bit of pain. <laughs> you have got to work at it. Then there's loving kindness, metta. The Buddha often uses metta as um, uh, mean, to mean all forms of love, which which includes compassion and sympathetic joy. See, so remember rejoicing in someone other's uh, for- good fortune or or success. As our own. Don't forget all these things. Have to be also directed towards ourselves. And then equanimity. Equanimity. All these uh, virtues do have their obvious enemy. Their their straight enemy. And their subtle enemy. So with love the the obvious enemy is hatred. But the more subtle enemy is attachment. And you can always tell when you're coming from attachment. Because you tend to be not listening to the other person or not taking their view or their desire uh, on um, and then you tend to get upset because they're not doing what you want to do uh, you get irritated you get bored with them, all that sort of stuff or whenever you feel negative about somebody whom, especially if you have a close relation to them then you know that's a sign of our attachment, see it's always coming from, from me rather than them or us. See. It doesn't mean to say that. Um, I mean, you've got to be careful with that because you don't want to get abused. Uh, you, you've also got to take yourself into account. See. Anyway, it's a tricky area. I haven't got time. <laughs> <laughs> i going on about that one. Um, but equanimity, um, of course, is, a, is is completely is confusion. You know, just to get lost in something. But it's more subtle, enemy is this indifference where you're standing away too much. You're standing away too much. Um, There was a woman came to see me, said that every time she came out of meditation at home, her partner accused her of uh, being cold, you see. So I said to her, well, do you do any metta when you finish your practice? She said no. I said, well, that's what you've got to do. I said, you know, when you sit, in, when you, sit you, you want to be cool, you want to be equanimous, you want to be distant, you want to be able to investigate. But somehow you've got to re-engage, see, you've got to re-engage with the world, and you do that through the practice of metta. Anyway, she didn't come back, so... <laughs> Either he gave up on her or she practiced a bit of metta. So let me read out this, uh, this the, the way that it says in the uh, commentaries. As a great being, so that's often a synonym for somebody who is attempting to become uh, fully liberated. Or an enlightened being, yeah. Are concerned with the welfare of living beings, not tolerating the suffering of beings, wishing long duration to the higher states of happiness of beings, and being impartial and just to all beings. Therefore, they give alms to all beings so that they may be happy without investigating whether they are worthy or not. By avoiding to do them any harm, they observe morality. In order to bring morality to perfection, they train themselves in renunciation. And in order to understand clearly what is beneficial or injurious to beings, they purify their wisdom. For the sake of the welfare and happiness of others, they constantly exert their energy. Though having become heroes through utmost energy, they are nevertheless full of forbearance towards the manifold failings of beings. And once they have promised to give or do something, they do not break their promise. With unshakable resolution, they work for the weal and welfare of beings. And with unshakable kindness, they are helpful to all, and by reason of their equanimity, they do not expect anything in return. There we are. That's, that's, that's a nice little standard for us. <laughs> so that's that's the um, so, you know just a little reflections on on uh, these paramis, these virtues or perfections that we ought to develop. And the other thing is uh, commitment. So. It really is a case of uh, committing yourself to a daily practice. Morning, it's important because that sets, that sets the weather vein. It sort of reminds you the level of awareness and consciousness you want to try and maintain throughout the day. And then to practice that loving kindness to re-engage with the world um, straight after that, you see. So that's important. And then uh, in the evening, that's the other time, really. Uh, specifically when you come back from work or, or uh, definitely before you eat. Uh, after you, eat, you fall asleep. And the reason there is really to just sit. And remember, you don't always have to sit in posture. It is a good thing to sit in posture because it, it does help with the awakeness. But there you're just letting the the day come through. See? So irritations and anxieties and all this Things that have been happening during the day. Just let them arise and pass away. Just so let them pass. There's all the cleansing, you see. And then uh, preparing for sleep. That's also important. You know, rather than just, you know, coming straight off Facebook and launching yourself onto the pillar. <laughs> 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 or, some, or some exciting, you know, horror movie. And then <laughs> I mean, you've got to prepare for sleep. I always think you need a, a half an hour where you just slow down, you can listen to beautiful music, uh, you can practice metta. Uh, it's just something just to, to bring everything down so that when you sleep you actually have deep sleep. You and then of course there's uh, many times during the day when uh, there's nothing to do, you're not doing anything. In the sense of you're walking upstairs or you're waiting for some transport, the bus or the tube or you're hanging around waiting for a friend. Or, or, or there's nothing to do. You're just sitting there. And often what we do is we just let the mind wander. It's kind of wasted time. Whereas there are beautiful little opportunities to practice metta. Okay? Or to, you know, some positive thought or thinking around uh, the Dharma or, or a particular issue or something. But not to let the mind wander. See, that's, the, that's, the, that's the awful thing. Letting the mind wander. It's, it's all right when you're in a daydream, or but, but when you come out, you have to say we have to say to ourselves now what have I been developing there? <laughs> you know, what what horrible state of mind have I been developing in that ten minutes, half an hour? You know, when I first began sitting, you know, like a whole, I, I'd sit for a whole hour, going through <laughs> one fantasy after another. It's unbelievable. It has not got that much better. But I mean, at least. <laughs> but I mean, at least uh, it's, it's recognizing that uh, the mind, when, when you let it go, it it, it just is messing you up. That's all. And um, at Plum Village, which is a monastery in France, um, it's the main center for Thich Nhat Hanh, who's a very famous teacher uh, in the Zen tradition, the Vietnamese they have this uh, practice of uh, having someone ring a bell anytime. Absolutely, just out of the blue, just ring a bell. Uh, and even when the phone goes, as soon as you hear the bell you have to stop and you have to wait for the sound of the bell to disappear. It's a really interesting little practice. And it's just uh, bringing somehow uh, that into our lives. If, you've got a, if, if you do work on a computer... You can get the mindfulness bell. You can download the mindfulness bell, <laughs> and you can set it for every twenty minutes, half an hour. We can also set it for at random. You know, it annoys me terribly, but I, I, I keep on, <laughs> you know, ding up. <laughs> there is a great old teacher, anyway. So this idea of stopping. Uh, You'd be surprised. I mean, that was one of the great effects that meditation had on me when I first started. So I used to be a teacher. And, um, you know, you'd go out of one classroom. I was in FE. You go out of one classroom and, and you take whatever you've had in that classroom into the next one. Uh, and by the end of the day, it just felt ragged. And once I began this meditation, I, I'd, I'd used the, the passage from one classroom to another as, as a way of just letting everything or subside and it was quite amazing and during lunchtime instead of you know hanging around the, uh, with staff just chatting away about nothing i mean obviously it did a little bit of it but then i used to find a quiet corner and um it was amazing i the amount of energy i ended up with you know uh, at the end of the day was just uh, was it was just well it was just a different it was a different uh, my my understanding of work changed completely in terms of draining energy, you know. And in fact all, all I realised was that it was me draining energy. The work wasn't draining. Energy. <laughs> it was just me not not behaving in a in a in a wise way. So this constant stopping after everything, you know, after a phone call. So you just reflect on what the phone call was, you see. It only takes a it doesn't take long at all, you just stop. You think, oh yeah? Then you see, was it you know, was the heart brightened by it? Were you, you know, which is a good thing. Did you become irritated? Were you anxious? You see, and you just stay there, just wait for that to fade a little. You don't have to wait for it to go entirely, but at least uh, just to acknowledge it and let it fade away. So it's the same with meetings. You meet somebody after a piece of work, so you just stop. After a meal, just stop. And I think you'll be surprised what an effect it has. So with the with this constant reminder, just to be back into the present moment. And how do you do that? Remember the body. Just go back into the body. See, come off the computer, come off the mind, come off the uh, you know, they, off the uh, texts. <laughs> you know, just just start coming back into the But what, what are you feeling? What you know? How do, you, how do your feet feel? What can you see? What can you hear? And that immediately brings you back into this into a groundedness, you see. And then from there, you note your next intention. See. And what you do feel um, is just, a, you know, you've got a greater control over your life, especially your inner life, not so much the outer life, that's, that's to do with, you know, being in, in, in that matrix of, of relationship, but definitely your inner life uh, can be quite radicalised by it. So uh, you know, th- uh, we, we've just recognized the Buddhas coming from a slightly different place than um, our Western traditions of, of uh, Christianity, Judaism, Islam and um, uh, psychoanalysis anyway. He's coming from a position of really that there's something that we're deluded, and it's a mistake we're making. And therefore, our effort really is to understand what our true nature is. And that's really the purpose of the Vipassana, to see, to see ourselves as we, as we really are. And then to see the consequence of delusion, even if we can't see the core of delusion, this idea of a self. At least we can see the consequences of it, which manifest in these uh, attitudes of acquisitiveness and aversion and of fear, and then all the rest of them you See all the rest of the stuff. And on the positive side, to really develop the good heart. I mean, that's that's very clear. It's you know, don't forget that the ethical life runs in conjunction with wisdom. You can't you can't separate them both. And that's one of the criticisms of the mindfulness movement, which I'm sure you all know about, is that. Mindfulness is, you know, mindfulness and depression, mindfulness eating, but nobody ever talks about morality, it's all about mindfulness, <laughs> and I mean, sure it helps, sure it helps, but, you know, it's like, and they won't go anywhere near self, not self, I mean, that's, a, that's taboo, so it's basically pulling something out of its, it's like yoga, you know, body beautiful, and forgetting that it actually belongs to a very deep and profound spiritual tradition, so It doesn't mean to say that mindfulness won't help, it will, but but eventually uh, the person will, if they want to move, they're going to have to seek uh, something a little more deeper than than just mindfulness, you might say. Unless they have real insight, I mean, that's possible. You know. Remember that a lot of the mindfulness movement is about suffering, it's about physical pain, dealing with pain, it's about depression, it's about uh, anxiety and um, panic and things like that. Well, you know, it, there's no reason why they couldn't click. You know, in the midst of uh, superficially, should we say, dealing with an obvious problem, and not recon- and then suddenly realising where where the, the real where the real problem lies. Uh, I wouldn't want to uh, d- damn the whole process, <laughs> but it's obviously doing an enormous amount good. Um, yeah. Uh, mindfulness and CBT cognitive behavioral therapy about 97% don't have panic again because they've seen that panic is the reaction to fear fear of fear that's an enormous success isn't it and 60% that's the figure I remember don't go back into clinical depression that's fabulous and then, uh, so, uh, developing the virtues. It's yes, an active, to be actively involved in developing virtues. And then to organise our day around, you know, this whole idea of uh, mindfulness and how we can bring that to bear. Bring it to, bring it to a point where it feels that we're pretty mindful most of the time. That's it. That's a nice place to be. You must try it. So, <laughs> I hope my words have been of some assistance May you, by your commitment to the practice, soon attain the wonderful end of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org donate.